Uh, do you like to celebrate? Okay. Okay. I was like, uh, should we answer this? Yes, you can answer this. Okay. We like to celebrate. So I'll give you a couple opportunities here to answer that question. And uh, my wife and I got to celebrate a little bit this week in that on Monday was our 25th wedding anniversary. And so, oh, thank you. All right, good. You're ready. You're clapping hands. You're woohooing a little bit. And so, yeah, we had a good time. We got to go up to Seattle for a few days. We opened one card from somebody and it said, congratulations, celebrating 20 great years of marriage. And I said, I wonder if they've been talking to Angela and know that that's kind of the truth. It's like 20 great years and then five rough ones. I didn't know what they were saying with that, but (laughs) maybe they just forgot that it was 25 or I don't know. But anyway, uh, we got to celebrate that. Some of you got to celebrate when you heard that the Oregon Ducks for the first time since 1939 are making it to the men's final four in basketball. Any fans in here? All right, a few of you. So you like to celebrate things like that. Some of you are celebrating because as of the end of last Friday, it became spring break. Any fans of that? <laughs> we got some teachers and things like that. Okay, good. Well, hey, let me talk to you about another way that we celebrate. You know, and it's great that you can celebrate 25 years of marriage or uh, your favorite basketball team doing well for a season um, or spring break, things like that. But we're going to be celebrating something in the life of our church in three weeks that is a bigger deal than all of those three things I mentioned combined. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ, though he was crucified, was raised from the dead and lives today. Can I get an amen on that? That was a little lame. All right. I mean, I think we got a bigger cheer for the Ducks winning a basketball game. But anyway, I'm going to let you warm up to this a little bit. But here's, and this is why it's, it's in three weeks that we're going to really remember this. Though we could remember this every single day, in three weeks we're really going to remember this. We're going to get together on a Friday night, uh, a little less than three weeks from now, in this room, and remember that he was crucified. And it'll be a dark night, and we'll sing a couple songs, and, and that'll actually kind of be sad. I mean, it's like, we call that Good Friday, but it's really good for us. Didn't seem that good for Jesus at the time. But when we get here on Sunday morning, we like to celebrate. And so some people call this Easter, and we're fine with that. We call that Easter sometimes too. But we have a special name for it, and we've been doing this for a few years, that when we have this special name for it, we let out a cheer because we remember that this Jesus Christ that we sing about and this Jesus Christ that we pray to and live our lives for, he is not dead. He's alive. He's praying for us. He's preparing a house for us. So when we say this special word, we let out a big woohoo, and we call this Easter Day Resurrection Sunday. Ah, all right, there you go. And so we'll mention that phrase again in the next few weeks. And then on Easter morning, we'll say it again. And we'll say something like, we're glad that you're here on this Resurrection Sunday. And then we're just like, man, that is such a great truth that Jesus is alive. And so I want you to remember that in the next three weeks, in fact, because you're going to cheer for certain things. You'll cheer because you'll get to see some grandkids or you'll cheer because it will stop raining or something like that. But let's remember that 
our Savior, our King, is alive. He has a great love for us. He paid for our sins, and He is preparing a place for us. And so we will remember that He's alive, and I hope that you would celebrate with us. Well, today we're going to look at this Jesus a little bit. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Page 877, if you want to follow along in this black Bible sitting in front of you, and I want to read a few things with you today, uh, a story in the life of Jesus, some of the words he said, and as we read this, one thing it's going to do is it's going to help us to live life. As we read about this, Jesus says some things to say, I want to help you live life now in a uh, God-honoring way. I want you to live life now in the most productive way. And so this is for us to live uh, a better life. But secondly, as we read this today, I would hope that this would cause you to worship Jesus. To say, oh man, what we're in this story about. And in three weeks, yes, he's going to the cross on my behalf. That my sins would be covered and paid for. And then he raises from the dead and he lives today and he's here to give me life and empowers me to live and he's preparing a home for me and all of this good stuff. So hopefully by the end of today you would say, Jesus, you're even greater than I thought. So Luke chapter 18, page 877. And we're in this idea where there's less than a month to go for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. All right, I might just say that again just to make sure you're awake. But we're less than a month to go on this. But when we get to this story in Luke chapter 18, there's less than a month to go in Jesus' life as well. He knows that what is coming is this Jewish uh, yearly tradition called the Passover where they celebrate and remember that a lamb is going to be uh, uh, killed. The blood of a lamb is going to cover them, and it helps them remember an ancient story back when they were slaves in Egypt, and God said, if you would take a lamb and use its blood, I will pass over you and not bring judgment on you like I will the Egyptians who are serving other gods. And so every year the Jewish people are doing this. They'll be doing this again this year uh, throughout the world. Jewish people would do this. Jesus knows that this is coming up. And he knows this time that he is going to be the literal lamb. That his blood will be applied on our behalf so that God would pass over us and not have judgment on us. And so Jesus knows this is coming and this is less than a month to go for Jesus. Before we jump into that story, let me do a quick review though. Because one of the phrases we're going to see as we read today is the phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven And Jesus has been talking about this, and I hope that you're reading. If not, just start. Over the next three weeks, commit to reading God's Word. At the back of your notes today, you'll see, and it says, join us as we read these five chapters this next week. Um, You read this, and you, you notice what Jesus is saying about His kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We've said this, that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is victorious. If you're taking notes, let's write down a few things. That this kingdom is victorious. Jesus knows this going into it. He goes, man, it's going to be bad at times, but it's a victorious kingdom. And so he goes and he proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, the the victory of the kingdom, that I am coming for the blind and the sick and the crippled and the lame, spiritually and physically. I'm bringing restoration to all things, and there is victory in this kingdom. 
And so Jesus has been talking about this. He's also talking about how this kingdom is mysterious. This kingdom is a little more mysterious. Certain kingdoms we understand, you reign for four years and your boundaries are this big and and you have this much veto power and things like this. But this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this one's more mysterious. It's not for the healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's actually for everyone, which includes the sick and the poor. It's not a kingdom by might and power. Now, every other kingdom is about might and power and how strong we are. Jesus' kingdom is about humility and being poor in spirit. And this kingdom is hardly visible because this kingdom, it's a work of God in our hearts. And so one other thing that Jesus said is that this kingdom is near. When he walked around and talked to people, he said, the kingdom of God, my kingdom is near. It's not just that it's in front of your face, and it's not just when you die and go to heaven one day, but this kingdom is in your heart. It's right in front of your face, but it's among you. We are in this kingdom right now, and its fulfillment will be later in the life to come. But it is near. Now, with with all that being said, there's another teaching opportunity that Jesus has in Luke chapter 18, and I want you to look at this starting at verse 18. Now, you can read verse, the the first part of this chapter, and there are fascinating stories, and he's talking about prayer, and I thought, Lord, am I supposed to preach on that too? And I could have preached a month just on this chapter, but we're just going to look at verse 18 in this story today. Follow along as I read some of this. A ruler asked Jesus one day, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a question that has been asked of Jesus before. We looked at this two weeks ago. Somebody came up to him and said, what must I do to have eternal life? It's a good question. You should be asking this. God, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Some of you know the answer to this. Some of you have trusted Jesus. You have eternal life. Some of you are exploring this. Good. Keep exploring this. Jesus is asked this question, and he says this in verse 19. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He really didn't even answer the question. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, this is why it's good that we only read like one chapter a day, because you need to just pull this apart and say, what's going on here? The guy says, I want to inherit eternal life, and Jesus says, why are you calling me good? It's like, Jesus, just answer his question. But Jesus is getting to something here. Now, some of you might read this and say, wait, is Jesus saying that God only is good? Why are you calling me good? Is Jesus saying he's not God? You can wrestle with this a little bit. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I'm not God. It's just this man comes to him and says, hey, good teacher. And Jesus is really saying this at this point. He says, listen, see me as more than a good teacher. Okay, I am a good teacher. Jesus says a lot of good things about peace and loving your neighbors and forgiveness and kindness. And he's a good teacher. But if you just see him as a good teacher, you're missing the point on Jesus. He says, don't just call me a good teacher. I'm Savior. I'm King. So verse 20, Jesus says, you know the commandments. He's starting to get to the question now. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Some of you recognize those as coming from the Ten Commandments. Write this down if you would. Exodus chapter 20. 
if you wanted to read the rest of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says some of the Ten Commandments right there. He says, you know the commandments. Here they are. Here's five of them. Notice the man's response, verse 21. And he said, well, all these things I've kept from my youth. I I mean, I'm good at those. You just gave me a test of five. I just knocked those out of the park. I got all five of those down. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Because we're getting to your question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, you got those five? One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. You want the answer to your question? How about this? You knocked the first five out of the park. Let me give you this one. Verse 23, but when the man heard these things, look what it says, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Let's talk about what's going on here. What's going on in this? Is Jesus saying that you can earn your way to heaven by selling your possessions? Yes or no? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying to you, you know what, you have a lot of stuff. If you just give a lot to the poor, then you can inherit eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. Okay, The reason we know that's not true is that doesn't tie in with the rest of Scripture. Jesus has got another plan here. Is Jesus saying this to us, that you have to sell everything you own in order to truly follow him? Is that true? You'd say no. I mean, because you're wearing clothes that you own, I imagine, unless these are like rent-to-buy option or something like that. You know, or you don't have to get rid of all this. That's not what Jesus is saying. Again, that's not tied into the rest of Scripture here. But what Jesus is doing is he's getting to the heart of this one individual, a very rich person, a very rich person who wanted the blessings of God while having the blessings of the world. I think you and I kind of want this at times too. God, I want the blessings of you. I want heaven. I want everything good that you have to offer. But I also want everything that I can absorb and consume and hoard and collect. I kind of want the best of both worlds, God. God. This man, in essence, he's saying, I want to walk with one foot in my kingdom, But I also want to be a part of your kingdom. I mean, I want to be part of the eternal life. That sounds good. But in the meantime, I want this. And Jesus, knowing this man, said, Okay, you are pretty religious and you're a good guy and you can keep these commands. But you still have a problem. You love this stuff too much. Jesus is speaking to this man's number one idol, his wealth and the goodies that come from that. And I think in that sense, this story starts to speak to us. This is one of the things that this story is going to say to us. Some of us say, "I God, I want you, and I want all the good blessings you have, but I really want a good life right now, too. And you'll read at the end of this chapter, Jesus talks about following him and what that means. And regardless of your level of wealth this morning, your level of possessions, the reality is we want what we want, right? Some of you would say, man, I don't have much. But I'll tell you this, you want what you want. 
And some of you have great, greater wealth. And I know this about you too. You want what you want. There's something in our heart. And it would be nice to be included to have, I want what I want and I want to be included in God's kingdom. And Jesus starts saying, yeah, we're going to have to make some choices in life. Verse 24, follow along if you would. Jesus, seeing that he'd been, become sad with these words, Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. There's that phrase, kingdom of God. It's difficult for the rich, the wealthy. Verse 25, it's easier actually for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a weird verse. That's a weird picture. A camel, a big monstrous animal, eye of a needle. He says that's actually easier for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now he's speaking about this one guy too and saying it's difficult. Why is that? Why is that? Well, this man, he walked away sad and he's It's like, I love riches, I love wealth, I love my kingdom. And Jesus is really asking this question of who do you love? And it's tough when we have a lot of possessions, isn't it? It's tough when we have a lot of wealth. Some of you, again, in this room, are going, man, I don't have any wealth. That's not a struggle for me. I'll tell you what, if we all transported to Sierra Leone today, or if they came here, they would say, oh, you are so wealthy. You guys, you have clean water like crazy. Wow. You, you guys have multiple outfits. I, I'm guessing some of you drove here by a car. You got a car? When I was there last time in February, I was hoping nobody would ask if I have a car because I didn't want to say, actually, I have three. My kids drive a car. It's like, man, this is how wealthy we are. Now, why is it hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? It's difficult for us because we start saying, you know what? I've got a pretty good kingdom. I like my kingdom. I trust in my kingdom. When something goes bad, I got a checking account and a savings account and a second savings account. And I got this retirement account. And I can sell all of these goods on eBay. And I got a lot of things. I almost don't need God. We could almost say that because of our wealth. One of the things I'd like you to consider this morning is this, is that wealth and the trouble tied to it is a barrier to the kingdom. Wealth is a barrier to the kingdom. Now, the people in Sierra Leone, it's even wealth is a barrier to the kingdom of God for them as well. They like to collect things. They like to hoard things. And anytime something can take the place of God, that becomes a barrier to this kingdom. For us, this wealth, it gives us power, it gives us pleasure, it can distract us from God's kingdom. And some of us then would say, I don't want to even pursue God's kingdom, I just want to pursue mine. I just want to collect this, I want this, I want to pad my account, I want more clothes, I want more whatever, more... Uh, That becomes a massive distraction, a barrier to the kingdom. And this is what wealth can do. Jesus speaks into this. Because when you and I start saying things like, I've got it made, and we say this to some degree. Now, you might say, I wish I had it made like that person over there. But when you and I start talking about, I've got it made, that means, God, I really don't need you. 
And that's why it's difficult to get into the kingdom of God. It's difficult to run to God when we say, I don't need you. Sometimes then God would say, you know what, I'm going to allow difficulties in your life because I want you to see that it's not about your money and I want you to see it's not about your reputation. I want you to even see it's not about your physical health. I want you to cry out to me is what God says. Now this rich man says, I want the kingdom of God. That sounds good. He was sad though because he's like, man, I just love this stuff too much. If I have to make a choice between God's kingdom and my kingdom, my kingdom is so great. I love it. And wealth and the trouble tied to it is a barrier to the kingdom, which gets me to this question we should all ask ourselves. What is an obstacle keeping me from God? We all have these obstacles that keep us from God, keep us from talking to Him, keep us, keep us from relying on Him, keep us from pursuing Him and His work and His kingdom in our lives, in our church lives, in our community, in the world. What's an obstacle that keeps you from that? We all have these. Maybe it's the pursuit of money. Maybe you're hoarding that. Maybe you're counting that. Maybe it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life of what we have and do. And it's like, well, what's keeping me from God is I, I want to pursue this dream of mine. Now, money is tied into a lot of this, but we all have these obstacles that would keep us from God. I want this relationship. I, I want whatever that is. Now, maybe for you it's about building or preserving your bank account. Maybe for you it's building or preserving your reputation. Maybe there are other forms of seeking pleasure. I'd like you to write this down. I looked at it again this morning and I thought, man, I don't know why I didn't put this in the notes, but this is just a great phrase. Your idol will rob your time and steal your heart. Whatever it is that you love, your idol will rob your time and steal your heart if you're not careful. For this man that day when Jesus is talking in Luke chapter 18, his idol was money and possessions and wealth and all of this. And it's going to rob his time and steal his heart. And Jesus says it's difficult then to enter the kingdom of God. What's your idol that is robbing your time and stealing your heart? What are you pursuing? And today is another opportunity to say, God, I, that's a nice thing you allowed me to enjoy, but you are actually number one in my life. And as we look at this story, this is the most important thing to, to look to Jesus and say, actually, you and your kingdom is number one in my life. Let me show you some uh, passages. First one, 1 Timothy. Write this passage down if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Paul is writing to younger Timothy. He's given his advice. It's advice to us as well. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In other words, some people pursuing this money have actually said, you know what, I'm going to look at this and take my eyes off God. And before long, they're way down here and say, how did I get here? They've wandered from the faith. They've wandered from following Jesus. They've pierced themselves with many griefs. 
Paul says, be careful what you love. If it's not God and it starts becoming these things, it's a root of all kinds of evil. So verse 25, go back here if you would. It's easier, Jesus says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That sounds difficult. Holy cow, who's going to enter the kingdom of God then? Verse 26, those who heard it had the same question. They said, who can be saved? Who can be saved? Verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. The comments here, this is hard. If it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, well, who can? Now, this is part of the theology they had grown up with. They had said, if you're living a good life, God will bless you. If you read a lot of the Old Testament, it says this, meditate on God's word and you will be prosperous and successful. So it's like, okay, I'll memorize, I'll memorize, I'll memorize, I'll memorize because I want to be prosperous and successful. Well, God doesn't always mean that your bank account will be prosperous and successful. Read Psalm 1 sometime this week. Psalm 1. And it says this, here's the wicked and here's the righteous. And the righteous do this and they meditate on God's word and they live by it. And they are prosperous and successful. So people would grow up and they'd say, man, they look wealthy. They must be right in the eyes of God. They must be serving the Lord because they're, they look healthy and everything's good with them. Until we read the story of Job, right? Job, his life falls apart in many ways. His friends think, you know what? It's because you have sin in your life that you're experiencing difficulty. That was not the issue. God says, I'm just going to allow difficulty at times. I got a much greater story. And being prosperous and successful may not mean in this life with your bank account. Oh, but there is prosperity and success it just not, may not be with your bank account. Consider Jesus, if you would. Jesus, sinless. He should be blessed like crazy, right? At times he says, I don't even have a place to sleep at night. And that's some poverty. Says he was despised and rejected by men. Says he was a man of sorrows. You, they would struggle with that and say, wait a second. If you're a man of sorrows and you're, you're, you're being rejected by many, then... Can you really be living a righteous life? This messed with their theology. This guy, Jesus, that just came to you, he's got so much money, he must be honoring God. Jesus is saying, this is uh, your theology. Let me mess with that a little bit. God doesn't always bless righteous living with a great bank account. He doesn't. Now, let's get back to... uh, Jesus and what he says here. He says this, with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Because they're saying, wait a second, a camel, eye of a needle, that looks like an impossible task. Jesus says, let me tell you, with God, all things are possible. Anyone, and frankly, everyone can be saved. I'm going to bring all types of people to myself. I'm going to bring camels through the eyes of needles. I'm going to do that. God can do that. But let me ask you this. When you read that verse and it says, with God all things are possible, what comes to your mind? 
I wrote this this week as I was looking at this, and I just said, God, what about this? Are all things possible about this? And I just started making a list, and I just started wondering about my family, and I'm like, God, I've been praying for certain things. Really, is are all things possible? Then I started thinking about our church family and some of the issues that happen here and, and health issues and relationship issues. And I'm like, really, God, are all things possible with you? And then my heart goes out for marriages and these health situations, money situations. And I see sickness. And some of you will write on your connection card about your own sicknesses or loved ones. And you'll write about some of these marital struggles. And you'll write about addictions seemingly winning. And I'm thinking, God, are all things possible? Really? I was just thrown by that for a minute. Are they? And when I start wondering if all things are possible, the Lord caused me to think this, and I want to share this with you, because I remember that God has revived my dead soul. All right? When you start wondering if God, with God, are all things really possible, for those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus, know this, that God has revived your dead soul. And if God can do that, yes, all things are possible. God can take you, whatever your story might be, and he revives dead souls. I was looking at a passage in Colossians chapter 1. It says this, that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. If God can revive my dead soul, yes, with God all things are possible. Don't lose sight of that. Look at this passage up on the screen here. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes this and he says, Church, I want you to know God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, what's it say, like a little sick? When we were dead in our trespasses, our sins made us spiritually dead. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is why in three weeks when we remember this great event that Jesus has been raised to life, it's like that he would raise Jesus to life. He's going to raise our dead souls too when we place our faith in him. Many of us have done that. He's already raised your dead soul. He's revived it to life. And when you start wondering, "Mm, are all things possible? (laughs) He's done a lot in your life. Don't lose sight of that. Now, There's a big finish here, and I want to look at this in verse 28. Peter said, and and this is usually pretty funny, because after Jesus says something quite profound, it's usually Peter who says, I I want to talk before I think. I just want to say something. Again, Peter does this here. Peter said, Jesus, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Stop there. Peter asks this question, and I think it's a fair question. I think it's a question maybe we've asked at times. If not, uh, you will at times. Jesus, is it worth following you? I see this wealthy man, and it looks like he's got a good life. Frankly, I'd like his life. 
Is it worth following you? I mean, because we've left some things to follow you. For the last three years, we've been following you. You've been saying that you're a king and there's a kingdom. But man, we've had some sleepless nights. We've been mistreated. Is it worth following you? I think Peter was even saying, I kind of want to be rich. Like this guy that you were just talking to. We gave up a certain kingdom, in essence, Jesus, to follow you and your kingdom. We gave up hanging out with our kids, and we gave up a, a fishing gig, and we were doing pretty good with that fishing gig. And Is it worth it, Jesus? You ever think like that? You ever think, you know what, if, if I didn't do the God thing, I wouldn't, like, give to church or some charities and... I could have a nicer home or a nicer car or a better phone or whatever it might be. If I wasn't doing the God thing, I wouldn't have woke, woke up this morning and thought, oh, I got to go to church, all right? I mean, I'd like to go to the beach a little more. And maybe we ask a question like this, Jesus, we've left homes and followed you. We've given up money and followed you, and we've given up time and followed you. You see, God, if I, I didn't serve you or if I didn't give money or whatever, I'd have more me time. We kind of all want that, right? We, we want that. I, I, I would like to pursue my kingdom. At time, I've had this conversation with my wife, with my kids, and it's like, you know what, we could have a nicer car, or we could have a nicer this, or a nicer that. But one of the priorities we do is we take money and we give every month. And then we help other people, and it, we could say, ah, you know, if we didn't do the Jesus kingdom thing, we could build up a cooler us kingdom here. But notice what Jesus says. Verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I want you to write this down because I, I believe this is a truth that we have to know deep down and it's this, that God will reward now and for all eternity. That God will reward. Jesus is telling Peter this, I want you to know that there is value in this and God will reward now, actually now, many more times now, but in eternity in greater ways. It's just some of your reward may not be what you think. Your reward might be that you have peace that transcends understanding. That might be your reward. That you could sleep at night knowing that your loved one has cancer might be that you can sleep at night knowing that your loved one is not following Jesus. That God would reward you with peace. It may not be with money, but he'll reward you. It might be with joy. Some of you have been diagnosed with certain things. How do you have joy in this? It's a reward of God right now for following him. You say, well, if I, he wanted to reward me, he could just give me a better body. Listen, this body's going to die, isn't it? Every single one of us. Unless he comes before that, but that he would give peace, that he would give joy. How about this one, soul satisfaction. There is soul satisfaction in following Jesus. 
we can collect things. And I, I man, I, I love collecting things. And, and the older I get and the more mature I be, become, it's like, man, I don't need to collect these things. But there's some satisfaction in collecting. It's like, man, look what I'm hoarding. I'm, I'm a, I mean, look what I'm collecting. I didn't mean hoarding. I'm collecting. But somehow when we serve the Lord and follow Him, there's actually soul satisfaction. Like, I didn't have me time, but I actually did something that honored the Lord, and my soul is satisfied. It's a reward, isn't it? Jesus says, when you follow me, there is reward now. Not to mention that there is a great inheritance coming as children of the king. There is a great inheritance. He's like, I'm the king of all, and I've got an inheritance for you. And that's good. But right now, I don't want you to lose sight that there is peace and joy and soul satisfaction and many other rewards right now as you follow me. So I thought, well, so what? Here's a couple so what's. In light of the fact that God is going to reward us now and for all eternity, let me give you two thoughts on this. One, so don't get tired of doing good. Don't. Don't get tired of doing good, knowing that God will give peace and joy and satisfaction, soul satisfaction. Don't. Don't get tired in doing good. Write this passage down, if you would. Galatians 6, verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes this, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Just tell you about a year and a half ago, I remember one day just being in the office and saying, I just want to give up. All right, I just, I just want to call it quits and ugh, I just I want to give up on church, want to give up on work, want to give up on family, just want to give up on life, right? We've all been there. This passage happens to be the one that's put in, my, in front of my face that morning, and I'm reading this, let us not grow weary of doing good. I'm like, I'm weary. I want to give up. Wait, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. And I'm like, when's the season? When are we going to (laughs) reap? God says, just don't grow weary in doing good. That's the message. And I think Jesus says that. I'm going to reward you. Since that time, I've had much peace. I've had much joy. I've had much soul satisfaction. And I'll probably have other difficult times. But this is a great truth. I'm not going to get tired of doing good because God will reap in us a great harvest. So don't give up. But when Jesus says that God will reward now and in all eternity, I want you to also notice this. So don't let anything derail you. Don't let anything derail you. Similar thought, but don't let anything throw you off the tracks here. Let me show you this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always giving yourself to the work of the Lord. Watch this. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This would have been a great message for Peter to hear that day. Listen, I know you want to have wealth and riches like this guy, but listen, you always give yourself to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord, it's not in vain. It's not empty. I'm reminded of this passage as we have a team down in Mexico, because it was about three years in Mexico, as we're saying goodbye to Pastor Alfredo and his wife Connie, I wanted to encourage them, so I open up their Spanish Bible. I can find 1 Corinthians 15, the end of verse 58. I get to this, and it's all in Spanish. And I just start reciting this verse, and they get to the end of this where it says, not in vain, and they go, and Pastor Alfredo says, no es en vano, is not in vain. 
this work we do, it's not empty. It's not wasted. Ah, your kingdom may not be built like your neighbor's kingdom or in the flesh like what you'd like your kingdom to be. But as you give and work for the Lord, God's kingdom is growing. It is being built in you and through you. Your labor is not in vain. I have to, this is one of the passages I just keep memorizing because I have to be careful of not being discouraged at times. It's like, no, I'm always going to give myself fully to the work of the Lord because working for Him, it's not in vain. I mean, I look at other people and go, oh, man, that would be a nice kingdom to build. That's not the kingdom I'm building. It's not my own. It's King Jesus' kingdom. And so you may not see God's blessing now, but know this, that you can't let anything derail you here. Don't let anything derail you. It's not empty serving the Lord. Now, as I read all of this, and I read Jesus walking through this story with this guy, and this is just a fascinating story, I just had this quick thought as I read it, and I kind of stopped there. I just thought, is this just positive thinking that Jesus is saying to Peter? I mean, they encounter this wealthy guy. Just imagine whatever that looks like. And then Jesus says to Peter, no, if you follow me, it's going to be good. I mean, are those verses I gave you, is this just positive thinking? I mean, or does this really work, right? I mean, sometimes we wonder, does this really work? I wondered that as I was, again, reading this. I'm like, I, I know it works, but Jesus, are you just trying to be, like, encourage the guys? Do you, did you really believe this? Then I went down to verse 31. Read verse 31 with me if you would follow along. And Jesus, taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. He says, we're going to Jerusalem in the next few days. I know what this means for me. You don't know what it means, but we're going to Jerusalem. Because we're building a kingdom. Now watch this. And everything that is written about the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He's pulling up ideas about being despised and rejected by men. By his wounds there will be healing brought. Verse 32. For he, the Son of Man, Jesus, he's talking about himself, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, you may have to Google that. That's beating him to the point that they're ripping flesh off of his back. They're doing this multiple times, 40 times. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now watch this. Uh, Luke writes this. He says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was being said. But we can understand this because we look back 2,000 years, and we say, here's Jesus. He's saying this. Listen, God is going to reward now and for all time. And Jesus then says, Let's go to Jerusalem. We're actually going into the fight. We're going into the fire. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to rip the flesh off my back. They're actually going to crucify me. 
But I also know this. I'm going to be raised from the dead. I will be the victorious one. Whew. I, Jesus does not just say, ah, follow me, and there, there's some rewards I'm pretty confident of. No, he says, listen, I know this. I'm more than talking the talk. I'm walking the walk. I'm walking to Jerusalem to do this. And as you and I read this, I, I would hope you'd say, oh, Jesus, whoo, you're the hero here. He knows what, this didn't catch him blindsided like, oh man, they're going to crucify me tomorrow? No. He's like, let's actually go there. And it's going to be brutal. And if I were living just for this kingdom and living for a comfortable life, I'd never go to Jerusalem. I'd run away from there. But he says, it's not about this kingdom. And so let's go. And what I notice in here is that Jesus proved his belief in the kingdom. He proved it. He's like, ah, this is more than just talk. He proved his belief in the kingdom. And he continued to journey to the cross. God will reward. This king, this kingdom, it is victorious. And I want you to know this as well. Because you and I battle in this world. It's like, what kingdom am I living for? My body's falling apart. If it just got healthy, everything would be right. Listen, that, that's not the end all, your physical health. The end all is not that you just have the greatest bank account. The end all is not that you just have fun all the time. Enjoy the beach at times. Enjoy the mountains. Enjoy the basketball games. Enjoy the family. Enjoy donuts. All right? But that's not the end all. That's not the kingdom we're living for. And Jesus proved his belief in the kingdom by saying, I'm going to the cross. I want to encourage you with these words. Because we are bombarded every single day with whose kingdom am I living for? Whose kingdom am I building? And Jesus says, it's not the one that you always see in front of your eyes. No. It's a kingdom now that will last for all time, but it's God's kingdom. And that's a struggle for us because we live... We're just bombarded constantly. Before the day is out, you'll be bombarded with this again. You watch TV or just drive down the street and like, oh man, that guy has a great car. I'd like one like that. And we just live in this tension and Jesus talks to us and shows us the best way to live. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me and reflect for a moment. Because I don't know exactly what God is saying to you, but he's saying something to you. Where maybe you need to confess which kingdom you've been living for. Maybe it's confessing a lack of faith, saying, God, I just, I struggle to believe this. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Maybe for some of you who 
know that you are children of the King because you've placed your faith in Jesus. It's just a time to say, I, I again recommit my life to you and your kingdom. Maybe you're here and you say, I, I've never given my life to this King. And I want you to know that God offers this kingdom to you. He offers this family to you. He offers to revive your dead soul to you. It's called grace. It's a gift. That if you'd simply say, Jesus, revive my dead soul, he will give you life now and for all eternity. And he'll show you the way to live today and tomorrow and for all eternity. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your plan, for your love for us. I thank you for this story because it confronts the fact that we all have idols. We all want to build our kingdom. We all want to keep a foot in one kingdom while having the blessings of being with you. Would you help us to abandon ourselves for you in your kingdom? And we'll let you speak to us and direct us and show us what that means. It's a different path for each of us, but it's abandoning ourselves to you. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you've poured out on us. That you would include us into this that you understand our weaknesses right now and that you will produce the life of Jesus in us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.